Doing part 16 here of Galatians. As I said, we're going to kind of actually get back to the Galatians verses. Uh, we've been talking about the spirit versus the letter of the law. And so, uh, not that that wasn't fitting, but we haven't covered very many verses because we were kind of stuck on that one because it was so important. This is going to kind of piggyback to kind of explain that a little bit further with these verses. And so again, those listening, if you want to get more and watch it, uh, patreon.com. So Galatians 4.21, just going to read, backing up, just read these verses again so that we can keep the context of what we're talking about. It says, tell me you who desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was, or but who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. We also see here in verse 24, it continues, which things are symbolic. What things? Hagar and Sarah, Ishmael and Isaac. It says, for these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. So, Mount Sinai, the law, gives birth to bondage. All right? For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, which, by the way, side note, Arabia, not Egypt. Kind of interesting there, right? And corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is the earthly Jerusalem, and is in bondage with her children. You go to Israel today, you'll see there's still bondage there. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is mother of us all. And so Hagar is the Jerusalem from this earth, the present earthly Jerusalem. And the law in its improper sense. Sarah is freedom, the heavenly home. And that's what we're going to talk about here now is Sarah. <coughs> what does this all mean? Keep in mind that uh, the context here that there had been certain men who had come, past tense, to uh, tell everybody they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so Paul, when it says they are in bondage with her children, Paul was living that out. He was seeing these people trying to put others into bondage and say, you can't be in the family of God unless you do this and that. Now, we weren't going to go through all of those things again, but again, that's the context of what we've been talking about. So keep that context in mind. So breaking into new ground, for it is written. Where is it written? In the Torah, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, it says, Rejoice, O barren. Who is the barren woman? Sarah. Okay. You who do not bear, break forth and shout. You who are not in labor, for the desolate, Sarah, has become or has many more children than she who has a husband. So he is taking you back to the Old Testament again clearly showing you that it hasn't been done away with. He's using it to illustrate a new covenant point. Now, Isaiah 54, remember our chapter breaks are man-made. This is right after Isaiah 53. And a lot of people are familiar with Isaiah 53 because it is a huge messianic prophecy in Isaiah 53. And so he wants you to make that connection. Uh, the suffering servant who was bruised 
for our transgressions. By his stripes we are healed. That's the kind of thing that's talked about there. And he's making a connection to Sarah because Sarah is a picture of the new covenant. What's Isaiah 53 talking about in Isaiah 54? The new covenant. And that's where this connection is coming from. Okay, Verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac, children of Sarah, children of the new Jerusalem, the children of the promise, we are children of promise, but as he who was born according to the flesh, hey, uh, Ishmael, then persecuted him, Isaac, who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. It's like, what? What do you mean it is now? Well, the children born of the flesh, those who are not of the covenant, the new covenant, those who are outsiders, will now persecute those of the promise. Okay, we're going to get in more detail on that in a minute. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out that bondwoman, or the bondwoman, and her son. Now, a lot of times people read that as, get rid of the law. We know that can't be what this means when Paul is, as I say all the time, saying the law is good. Do we then nullify the law? Not at all. The law is holy, righteous, and good. Uh, I mean, I could give you 20, 30 verses in the New Testament. So we know he can't be saying, get rid of the law. We'll talk more. Um, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So we're not children of Hagar. We're not children of those. Uh, we are children of promise, just like Isaac was, remember? She was barren. And there was a promise given that she would have not only just a child, but as many as the stars. And that child was born of the Spirit. That's key right there. We have been talking about the spirit of the law, the letter of the law, our motivation for obeying the law. Romans also talks about that. We do not have a spirit of fear, but we have a spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. It says that we do not serve in the old way of the written code. We serve in the new way of the Spirit. But notice you still serve. It's not like we don't serve in the old way. Now we're free to do whatever we want. We don't serve under the understanding of the old covenant. We now serve under the new, in the, in the Spirit. So that's going to be key. Even so is now, it said. Okay, only the children of the flesh. Now, keep in mind the context of what he was saying here, right? The context was you have all these people coming and telling them that you have to be circumcised in the flesh to be saved. And Paul is going through great length and trials to say, stop, stop, stop. This is not what makes you in the family of God. It's not your actions. It's not what you do that brings you into the family of God. That is of the flesh. You're not born of the flesh. You can't be born again by the flesh. In, for, in order for you to be born again, which you have to be born again to be saved, it has to be of the Spirit. So you're not going to serve, obey, 
in the flesh. You're going to serve in the new way of the Spirit inside of you. Okay? So, it says that those born of the flesh are going to persecute you. Tell you that you aren't a child of promise. That's exactly what those Judaizers were doing. You can't be one of us. You're not circumcised in the flesh. Persecuting them. In verse 30 there, it's basically saying, cast out those born of the flesh. Those who tell you that you have to be circumcised in the flesh. That you have to do something to be saved. Well, if you don't do this, you're not a Christian. You know, if you are watching something on TV that you shouldn't be watching, you're not a Christian. Okay? If there's a rule or a condition in order for you to be saved, we're in trouble. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't be following the conditional because there is an aspect of condition, but not in the way that they're saying here. That condition that there is, is this. If you truly are in the Spirit, what will you do? You're going to keep the commandments. Well, you'll fail a lot, but you're going to have a heart for them. That's what it means to serve in the way of the Spirit. Our motives, our desire is to obey and serve God. But if my motive is, well, I better do this, then that's of the flesh. And that's why the same law being kept by two different people can be wrong or right. Depends on what's in your heart, what your motive is. A tree is going to be judged by its fruit. You will be judged by the Ten Commandments. Not that whether you were able to keep all of them, but because Jesus kept it for you and you have a relationship with him and therefore you try to imitate and do what Jesus did. Okay. And when you fail, you're still free. So, anyway, again, context here is circumcision. But it applies to many things beyond that. But nonetheless, the context for this was indeed circumcision. In chapter 5, then, in Galatians, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Um, it says, Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. He's bringing our context back in here. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. What's interesting here is, first of all, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Well, what does liberty mean? You know, even in the United States we're supposed to have liberty, right? Does that mean you get to do whatever you want to do? No. It means you're free. And we have the right to live under that law. That's what he's talking... Liberty doesn't mean, okay, the law is now gone. doesn't mean that in the United States of America under the Constitution. Nor does it mean that under the law of God. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. He wasn't saying, oh, if you do this in the flesh, then you're not a Christian. 
Because he has Paul, Paul has Timothy circumcised later. He's talking about these Judaizers who have come in and saying, prove you're a child of God. Prove you're saved. Prove you are in the family. Get circumcised in the flesh. He says, if that's what you think makes you a child, if that's what gets you to heaven, you're going to see, he says, I wish you'd cut the whole thing off. That is literally what he says coming up. Okay, so, but again, this topic of circumcision is important to understand here. Um, let's go verse 4. He says, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. Notice, to be what by law? Justified by law. He's not saying just because you keep the law, so we should get rid of it. He's saying, if you're seeking to be justified, that means saved. That somehow you are putting in your own efforts to be saved. If you attempt to do that, he says, you have fallen from grace. In Romans, it even talks about Israel. He says, you mean what Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain? Why not? Because they sought it as if it were by works, not by grace. See, it wasn't the law that was the problem. It was them that was the problem and how their attitude was about the law, how they used the law. That's why Timothy says the law is good as long as one uses it properly. They were using it improperly. You have fallen from grace for we, through the Spirit, there it is again, that key, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails nothing does nothing for your salvation. But what does? Faith working through love. Notice faith works. It doesn't just say by faith through love, by faith working through love. A tree needs to produce fruit. Faith works. Hebrew or James, faith without works is dead. So you cannot get rid of one. You have to have both, but with a proper understanding. Okay, again, it's about justified by the law is what he's preaching against. Instead of being sanctified by the law. I don't even like the way I said that. The law does bring sanctification, though. And what I mean by that is, all of our steps of obedience brings us a deeper understanding of God, a deeper walk with Him. That's what a sanctified life is. Not that the law itself does it. So, oh, okay, I'm going to do this so that I can be sanctified. It is just that when you have a heart for God and you do those things, there's just a natural reward of it is sanctification and growth. So, uh, verse 6 there sums up the entirety of what Galatians is all about. In Christ Jesus, circumcision means nothing. That, that's not what gets you there. That's not what saves you. Going to the right denomination doesn't save you. Wearing a cross on your neck doesn't save you. Keeping the Sabbath doesn't save you. None of those things save you. If you seek to be justified by keeping the Sabbath or doing any other commandment, then 
you've fallen from grace. So, verse 7, you ran well. These people were doing well. They were, they were running. What's that mean? Do you mean they were just using their freedom to do whatever they want? No. You ran well. Paul is now kind of starting to, to recognize, listen, you guys were doing good works. Then he says, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? There's that word obedience, obeying. Wait, I thought we were freedom, liberty. Right? No, there's obedience involved. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. This attitude that you guys have, that you stopped obeying, is not from God. Verse 9, a little leaven, and by the way, leaven in Scripture is often used as false doctrine, sinful flesh, things like that. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. He who troubles you, who's that? Those Judaizers, those ones who have hindered them from obeying, those ones that are saying, you don't have to obey, you just have to get circumcised in a sense. We know exactly who he's talking about because it's the same ones that he talked about in the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council. He said this, Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. Now, again, Paul says it's good to keep the law, but he's saying these people are saying you must do it for justification is what Galatians just said. That's the problem. Justification by the law is evil. So anyway, um, when they were obeying the truth here in verse 7, what do you think that is? Obeying the truth. Well, how are you going to know what truth is? Well, the only way you can know it is from what Scripture says. So, you're not obeying lies. Um, let's see, I think verse 10 here, he's starting to let off on his rebuke. And he goes on and he says in verse 11, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision... Why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. And in the, the Greek there, that's what I'm saying. It, he literally is saying, I wish that they would go the whole way, not just circumcise, but cut the whole thing off. Paul was preaching against circumcision of the flesh here. That's the whole context of Galatians. That was the whole context of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. We've already talked about Galatians and Acts fit like a glove. This is how we started it off, showing you that it's the same thing. They're going to the same people. And so he wasn't teaching against the law. So can just again, I love the consistency throughout the whole book of Galatians in Acts chapter 15. Dealing with circumcision. And as soon as you lose that, that, that context, it allows you to isolate those verses and make it say what you want it to say. Uh, verse 11 here. 
Again, same thing, telling us the topic of the book is circumcision. Just not, you know, for salvation is what he's talking about or that that's what's bad. Um, Timothy said those who seek to live godly lives will be persecuted. What does it mean to seek to, you know, live godly? Obey. Nobody is going to accuse somebody who is absolutely disregarding the law of God of seeking to live godly. Isn't it funny how when people try to be obedient to God out of the heart, out of the spirit, that we're persecuted by those of the flesh. Now, don't take me wrong here. I'm not saying that everybody who doesn't believe the way you do is of the flesh and not Christian or anything like that. Actually, I'm, it's the opposite. But what I am going to say is this. When we live in the flesh and we understand the law by the flesh, that's when we persecute those who keep the law by the Spirit. I think it's chapter 44 of Ezekiel. I've talked about this before where he says, show the temple to the people of Israel. Make known its whole design that they may be ashamed of their sins. We always think of the tabernacle and the temple. What's that for? Well, that's where they did the sacrifices and whatnot. But in Ezekiel, I'm pretty sure chapter 44, he says, show them the temple so that they may be ashamed of their sins. What, the temple is supposed to make you feel ashamed? Yeah, because when they saw all the sacrifices and they saw the holiness of the temple, it made them realize how unholy they were. Remember now, you are the temple. And I'll tell you something. When you try to live a godly life, as Timothy says, when you try to live holy, you will be persecuted. Because it makes others ashamed of themselves sometimes. 43, 10 and 11. Thank you. So Ezekiel 43, 10 and 11 is where it talks about that. So point being though is sometimes, we've talked about this before, but just to remind you, I've been in that many times where I see people who live a holier life in an area that than I do, and sometimes it's uncomfortable to be around them because deep down, even though I don't like to admit it, I'm ashamed of my own sin. I'm ashamed. It's like, ah, oh, I, I wish I could do that, but I can't and I won't. And my flesh kind of rears up a little bit because I'm not willing to go that extra mile to do what they do. Because I love my sin too much. Or maybe it's not even a sin, but I love the world too much doesn't always have to be sin. There's a lot of things that keep us from being sanctified and walking in the Spirit. It can just be the captivity of activity in good things so that we're not spending time with the Lord. doesn't have to be sinful stuff. But we're just too busy to really dive into the Word and be blessed by that. So, anyway, verse 12 implies, like I said, to go the whole way. Um... These men are not to be regarded as the body of Christ. 
Anybody who is telling you that there is any way to be saved other than faith in Yeshua, Jesus Christ, let him be eternally condemned. That's what we read in other places, and that's exactly what this is saying here too. So keep that in mind. There are, this isn't just, you know, back then this was going on. It is happening to this very day. There are many denominations who say you have to believe this to be saved. You have to speak in tongues or else you're not saved. You have to be baptized or you're not saved. You have to keep the Sabbath or you're not saved. You have to worship on Saturday or you're not saved. I mean, there's a whole list of these things. That is all wrong. So Some of those things might be good. Is it good to be baptized? Is it good to you know worship on Saturday? Absolutely. But if you're teaching that you're not saved, if you're not doing that, then you've fallen from grace. Verse 13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. There's that word liberty again. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Now that just doesn't mean going and being sexually immoral or whatever. It means anything not of the Spirit. What's not of the Spirit? Anything that breaks the Word of God. So you have liberty, but don't use that freedom as an opportunity to sin. Some translations will even put it that way, I believe. But he says, but through love, serve one another. I could just as easily twist this scripture and say, oh, well, um, you've been called to liberty, so in order to be saved, you have to serve people. Right? That's not it. You've got to take the whole context. But anyway, verse 13 is circling us back to verse 1. Um, if you look at that there. In verse 1, he talked about a yoke of bondage. But here in verse 13, he explains it further that it's cheap grace and works salvation, works righteousness. And so you can compare that in the yellow with the blue. Verse 13, you are called to liberty. Verse 1, stand fast therefore in the liberty. And then up above in verse 13, don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but in verse 1, do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So, what is this opportunity of the flesh? As I said, it is sin. And I just think that that's very important to kind of compare verse 13 and verse 1 here because it explains what it means not to use your liberty. Yoke of sin, a yoke of bondage entangled with that. So, this is kind of an anchor statement to be sure that you can't take this message wrong, and yet we do it all the time anyway. That we have liberty to do whatever we want and abandon the law of God is not what this is saying. Martin Luther put it this way, and I agree with him 100%. He said that when he became a Christian, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I, I now can do whatever I want. Some people who don't understand the spirit of the law and only understand the letter of the law, will look at that and say, oh man, what an awful person. But Luther there was understanding the spirit of the law because he said that my wants are going to change. I get to do anything I want because I don't want to sin. 
like what Paul said, right? If I do what I do not want to do, okay, then he says, it's not me that's doing it. It's sin living in me that does it. Paul had a desire to do what's good. He even goes on to say, I have a desire to do which is, that is good, but I have this, this sin that's right there with me. There's another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner to the law of sin. Any of you relate to that? I know I do. There are times I feel like I'm a prisoner to the law of sin because there is a battle going on in the flesh versus the spirit. Your wants, your desires versus the flesh. My flesh breaks the law sometimes, but I don't want to. And when I do, I hate it. And that's what Paul says there. He says, and that which I, he says, I, that which I hate, I do. But he hates it. That's the key. Okay. He still had a desire to obey the law. Well, um, let's go to Peter and see kind of an anchor statement here that is very consistent. Same message. Again, a consistency through all of his writings. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. By doing what? By doing, first of all? Yeah, by doing good you will put to silence. That kind of sounds like that Ezekiel 43 verse. Show them the temple so that they may be ashamed. You're the temple. Verse 16, as free, he says, uh, let me put, it, put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as a bondservant of God. Not using your freedom to sin, to, and what is sin? As we've said before, John says sin is lawlessness. So the scriptures define what sin is, but as a bond servant. That's a slave. A slave to Christ. I've heard it said, there's a song, this evil, evil song, and it talks about I'd rather be, you know, kind of my own king or free in hell than a servant in heaven. Because we have this idea that being a servant is a bad thing. Hey, if I'm a servant of Christ, sign me up. And if you think being a servant of Christ is a bad thing, chances are you are of the, well, you are of the flesh. You do not understand the spirit of the law. This is the whole point in the Old Testament where if you were a slave and you wanted to serve your master, you would have your ear pierced on the door. They'd take an awl and pierce your door, uh, your ear to the door, basically. And so that is a picture of what this is. We should be willing bond servants because our master is a good master to serve under. The law, that is a terrible master to serve under. Don't sign me up for that one. And this is what it means when he keeps talking about we are free from the bondage of the law. You see, I'm not under bondage to the law. I'm under bondage to Christ. And what's the difference? A have to versus a get to. We're free, but we still serve willingly. Um, Andy Stanley, Charles Stanley's son, 
I use some clips of his and some of my other messages in reference to creation. Because he really is... He literally says this. This is a quote. He says, When science and the Bible disagree, science must win. Okay? I mean, I could show you a, a whole bunch. That's tame for a lot of other things he says. Yeah, it is very tame. And so, I want to show you what he says about the law. Okay? Because of liberty. We have liberty. Christians must, must unhitch Old Testament from their faith, says Andy Stanley. Here we see Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. What? Why do they quote it constantly? Constantly. How did Jesus reason that he was the Messiah from the Jewish scriptures, right? So he's already wrong. And my friends, we must as well. Stanley argued it had to be done for the same reason the church in Acts chapter 15 did so. What? No, they didn't. We talked about that. They didn't unhitch. They said Moses is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. We don't want to overburden you, so here, guard your temple. Don't eat food sacrificed to eat. Don't eat... Uh, idols, don't eat blood, and abstain from sexual immorality. In my Revelation prep, in getting ready for you guys, it's interesting as I read in chapter 2 of Revelation, just two of the churches in that chapter alone, it says that they were eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. Those two things keep coming up over and over and over again. We'll talk more about that when we get to Revelation. But it's interesting. Clearly, he's wrong. He says, uh, in the church in Acts 15, did so, which was so that we must not make it difficult for those who, Gentiles who are turning to God. In other words, get rid of the law because it's too hard. That's not what Acts 15 said, but that's what he's saying it says. For many, it is liberating. You see, it's liberating not to be under the law. I agree the way I just said that. I'm not under the law. But it is not li uh, liberating to get rid of the law. It's liberating to love the law. Just not for justification. You know, Jesus' own words, he said this, if you b had believed Moses, you would have believed my words. You see, Moses and the law isn't about a list of do's and don'ts. It's about getting to know Jesus on a deeper level because every one of those laws is about him. And as soon as you lose focus of that, no wonder you're living under the flesh and in the letter. You think it's just a rule to, to make you some better Christian or something. No, it's not a rule. It, it, it's, it's Jesus it's a description of his character. It's something about him. Had you believed Moses, you'd have believed me, he says. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Some interesting things to contemplate there. So, very wrong here. He continues, Jesus' new covenant 
His covenant with the nations, His covenant with you, His covenant with us can stand on its own two-nailed, scarred resurrection feet. It does not need propping up by the Jewish scriptures. His whole point is all you need to know is the resurrection. I'm not going to get into all that, but again, even that scripturally is wrong. You remember in, I think, Luke 17, he says, um, if you don't accept the resurrection, you wouldn't believe in me either. I'm trying to remember how that's worded now. Normally it's right there, but I can't pull up the, the start. But anyway, yeah, yeah, I say it all the time, but it's just stuck in there somewhere. But anyway, um, it says, Stanley acknowledged that his comments may be considered a little disturbing to some, but then he added that for many it's liberating. Okay. Well, somebody should tell all the apostles this, because, I don't know, they kept using the Old Testament to prove Jesus was the Messiah, that he would resurrect, but apparently they didn't get the message. So, And again, guys, this is just so common sense. With, with scripture, but somehow we've lost that. Modern ears want to hear it. It is. Our itching ears, you know, we're going to gather around us a great number of teachers to say what our itching ears want to hear. And let me tell you, liberation from doing something is freedom for many in the church who are in the flesh. It's liberating. Oh, I can watch whatever I want on TV. Can I ask or say, if you want to do those things and there's no guilt of it, maybe you should examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Because a tree is judged by its fruit. Okay, I'm not saying if you do something wrong that you're unsaved or that you're not a Christian, but if you're doing something wrong and you don't care, then yeah, maybe. Your wants. I say it's common sense because of this. You guys have made, probably heard me say this already because I got it from Vody Bauckham, where he says, you know, we're taught all the time that sports builds character, right? And most people in the church agree with that. As soon as I say it, yep, yep, sports builds character. All I have to do, though, is just kind of, because you've heard it so many times, you've believed it. Just redirect it just a little bit. If sports builds character, then the NFL and the NBA ought to be the most character-filled people in the country. <laughs> now all of a sudden common sense kicks in. But you had heard it so many times that it, 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 it sunk in as truth until somebody just came along and challenged that truth for a second. Now by no means am I saying sports are wrong or bad. I'm not saying that. I've gotten in trouble from that before. People think that I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm saying they aren't what builds character. God's word builds character. He's the one that puts character, which is why it's Christian athletes that typically have the character, and the rest are just characters. We, yeah, we have to understand that, and another dis, little disclaimer, can, are there character values that you can get from sports? Yes. But it needs to be connected to morality to, to really get that. Uh, there was a great movie, who my wife will say, uh, but it was a great movie called Time Changers. See? Told you. It is a B-grade movie as far as its production, but 
the message is fantastic and it is it's basically this guy goes back in time he comes you know back to today he was from the past he comes to today and he'll go into a movie theater and he comes running out saying stop the movie stop the movie stop and they're like what's going on he said they're taking the name of the lord in vain on the screen and by the way he's there with a church group and that's exactly what we do today we see uh, well oh man you got to go see this movie it, it only had a couple of bad words in it Okay, it doesn't shock us anymore. We're willing to tolerate and compromise on those things. And I'm just as guilty of that, by the way. Okay, but I use the illustration of the, the kid who comes home and the mom makes brownies and they're just eating these things up and they love it. And they go, can we have some more? And she says, yeah, you like those? Yeah, yeah, we love them. She said, good, I only put just a little bit of poop in there. <laughs> a little bit of poop makes those brownies no good. And that's the attitude we should have with the, you know, taking of the Lord's name in vain on the movie screen. It should appall us. Anyway, you get the point. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Does it say that when you look at the law of liberty that that's what saves you? No, you're going to be blessed in what you do. That's what I've been saying the whole time. We're not doing these things to be a better Christian than our neighbor, we do these things because it brings blessings. Well, and that's not why we do it. We do it to bring honor to God, and the blessings are a result of it. And so, uh, just so important, don't just hear the word, but how many of us go to church on Sunday, and then you got six days of your week to go live your life? Is that being a doer of the word? No. And it is the perfect law of liberty. Well, what is that? I mean, he defines, James is going to really define here what liberty is. Doing the law from the heart. Because it's who he is. That's who James is who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and then he defines it. Not a forgetful here, but a doer. See, the law of liberty isn't anything you want, you don't have to do anything. The law of liberty is don't just hear it, do it. James 2.8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the what? Convicted by the law that we're free from? That's gone? The law as transgressors or sinners. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. But that's interesting. Now, the context of this, though, Love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. 
That's the good thing. But now he's going into bad. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. You're convicted by the law. In other words, let me, let me back up in verse 9 here. What defines sin? The law. Okay, we talked about that. Verse 10. Like Paul was saying, he wished that they would go the whole way and castrate themselves. He keeps quoting the Ten Commandments here. Okay, um, he must have considered it important. Basically saying if you sin under the law, then the law, which is still in effect, will convict you as a sinner. So let me repeat that slowly again. If you sin under the law, by breaking the law, the law will condemn you. But what about, if we go to the top of these verses, if you sin not under the law, but you're breaking the law, but you're not under the law, does that condemn you? No. And this is why I am not under the law, but under the Spirit. Will I break the law? Absolutely, I'm going to break the law. Not because I want to, but because of the flesh. <coughs> What's that? You said that very enthusiastic. Yeah, well, it's true. Sad, but true. I think all of us are in that boat. And, but the good news is, I'm not under it. I'm not condemned by it. Whoever shall keep the whole law, but stumble at one point, he's guilty of all. If I am under the law, not the law of liberty, but the letter of the law, I am as guilty as sin and I am going to hell. It doesn't matter how good I think I am or how hard I try or how even good I look. I'm still doomed to hell. But under Christ, the royal law there in verse 8, we obey from love and there is absolutely no convicting us as sinners. The deceiver, the accuser, can't accuse me anymore. I always tell people it's like this. God is up there in heaven, and maybe Satan comes up there someday and says, God, are you serious? Look at Brian. Do you see how he's acting? He says he's a believer. He says he's a Christian. Did you see what he just did? Did you see? Did you hear what he just said? And God will just look at Satan and say, yeah, that's my servant Brian. He does that sometimes. There is no conviction because God knows my heart. God knows that I'm going to be repenting of that. So, David, same thing. He murdered somebody and God said, I'm not going to hold this sin. Yeah. God was looking for a man after his, his own heart. That's what David was. Because David was convicted. David was tormented by his, his faults. So, anyway, the law is still going to condemn those who are of the letter of the law. But it will not condemn me, even though I still love the law. Well, that's why I can love the law. Because <laughs> it's lost its power. James 2.11, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. 
Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Isn't it interesting that he is talking about the Ten Commandments again? So speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. In other words, he's saying, you may not do this, but you're going to do this. You will be a transgressor of the law. So, because you're going to be a transgressor of the law, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law of liberty. Freedom. There is no condemnation. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God has been merciful to us. Hebrews 10.26 backs this up. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, in other words, after you become a Christian and you willfully sin, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. We talked about this when we went through the, the book of Hebrews. This passage was basically saying it's one thing to sin when you're under the law, but when you sin under grace, it's even worse. Willfully sin. Let me make sure that word's in there. We all sin under grace. But when you willfully reject the law, it's even worse. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So, pretty serious. Um, Verse 29 of Hebrews 10, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose that we will thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? When you willfully sin, willfully disobey the law, persecute those who keep the law, he says, you're trampling the Son of God underfoot. You're insulting the spirit of grace. Okay? So, don't trample on grace by saying we should get rid of the, you know, what Andy Stanley said, get rid of the Old Testament. It has no meaning in my life. So, verse 14 here of Galatians 5, for all the law is fulfilled in one word. All right, finally, we're going to get it all cleared up for us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love. If you do that, you're going to keep the law. You're not going to steal. You're not going to covet their stuff. Just sums it up, that's all. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Galatians 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, any sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Love your neighbor. Love God. If you do those things, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. How do I know what he wants me to do? He says it right in his word. We follow the law because we love, not we follow the law because we have to. 
by the way, verse 14 there, how can you fulfill that which is thrown away? You can't. Right? And then, like I said, chapter 6, verse 1 there is saying the exact same thing, but I want you to note this. Note that underlined word. The law in yellow there in Galatians 5.14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. What is all the law? Is that the Ten Commandments? Yeah. Do you think it's all the other moral and civil laws? It's all of them. As a matter of fact, a lot of those moral and civil laws were for the neighbor, right? So we see in Galatians 6.1, he's saying the exact same thing, right? Well, look there in blue, underlined. Fulfill the law of Christ. He is using those two synonymously. In 5.14, the law, all the Ten Commandments, all these rules, is basically synonymous as it's used in the very next verses in chapter 6, verse 1. But there it's just called the law of Christ. So, they're the same. Um, so, in other words, you abandon Torah, you abandon the law of Christ. Pretty much what it's saying there. Many think the law of Christ is getting rid of the law of Moses. It's not what this is saying. Quite the opposite. Matter of fact, that would be the spirit of Antichrist, lawlessness. Show you what church father Irenaeus said. I think he even got this. Not to say I believe everything that he says, but he got this. Those persons prove themselves senseless who exaggerate the mercy of Christ, but are silent as to the judgment, and look at the more abundant grace of the New Testament, but forgetful of the greater degree of perfection which it demands from us. They endeavor to show that there is another God beyond him who created the world. What he was dealing with here were the Gnostics, and the Gnostics spread the whole idea of Cheap grace. Not much has changed. There's nothing new under the sun. But a greater degree that it demands. That's pretty much what Matthew or we saw in Matthew 5 and 6 in the Beatitudes. He showed the spirit of the law, and the spirit of the law was a greater degree. Today people want a Jesus who affirms them. Someone who is going to entertain them. A Jesus who is going to coddle them. A Jesus who isn't going to convict them and make them feel bad about themselves. Well, let me tell you something. He does do all of those things when you walk in the Spirit. He coddles me. He entertains me. He affirms me but not the way that the world is doing it today, putting a bunch of clowns in the church to entertain, to be silly, to make a mockery of the reverence and holiness of our God. Leading pigs down the aisle, literally. I've seen pastors kiss a pig as a challenge you do this i'll kiss a pig you know i mean all kinds of things but this is what church has become that is not 
what Irenaeus is, is understanding here. How about Tertullian? The separation of law and gospel is the primary and principal exploit of Marcion. Marcion was a heretic. He basically said that the law was gone and all kinds of things. He was the one who had really the first canon of scripture and Old Testament was out of it. Anyway, his disciples cannot deny this, which stands at the head of their doctrine or document. That document by which they are inducted into and confirmed in this heresy. For such are Marcion's antithesis or contrary oppositions, which are designed to show the conflict and disagreement of the gospel and the law. So that from the diversity of principles between those two documents, they may argue further for a diversity of gods. What he's saying is that they had a diversity of gods. There was a New Testament God and an Old Testament God. The mean one of the Old Testament and the loving Jesus of the New Testament. What's the yeah, 85 to 160 for Marcion. Yeah. Marcion was the, the main guy who first started this separation. He goes on, Marcion who set up the separation in opposition to that peace between gospel and law. See, there's a peace between those two. Which previously, from the appearance of Christ until the impudence of Marcion, had been kept unimpaired and unshaken by virtue of that reasoning which refused to contemplate any other God of the law and the gospel than that creator against whom after so long a time by a man of Pontus separation has been let loose. Well, hopefully you understood all of that because I you know, barely do. But bottom line is... I want you to see that he's basically saying there is a connection between the law and the gospel. Matthew 7, 12 said that whatever you want men to do, also, you know, do to you, you do to them. This is the law, the sum of the law and the prophets. There is a connection, a peace between them. I want to show you even, even the Jews, the non-believing Jews got this. Look at this. This is from the Torah treasury. Most people are servants of their passion, but the truly free person is the one who can control his desires. When the sages taught only one involved in Torah, only one involved in Torah is truly free. Now, I don't fully agree with what they're saying here in the sense that, you know, having control of your desires is truly free. If you know Jesus, that gives you freedom, which then gives you the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. Okay, so just to clarify that. They meant to say that only Torah allows one to free himself from the shackles of desire and to truly exercise free choice. Without Torah, one is not free at all. I couldn't agree more with that. He's a slave, controlled by a master, foreign to his better instincts. While intellectually he might have correct ideas of how to live, ultimately his master, his passion, will force him to act otherwise. In other, way, in other words, without Torah, you are going to live by the flesh. Jesus is saying, you live in the spirit, which keeps the Torah. But nonetheless, you kind of see the, the context here. If you understand that Jesus is Torah, Jesus is the Word of God, read it with that, then it, it's perfect. makes perfect sense. David says uh, in Psalm 16, verse 2, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. 
my goodness is nothing apart from you. Did David think that he was saved by his righteousness, his works, obeying the law? No. Psalm 31.1, in you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Not his righteousness. Psalm 71, verse 16, I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, of yours only. I'm telling you something, guys. When we read the New Testament and we, our understanding of the law has come from the Pharisees who didn't understand the law. And that's our understanding of it today. That's not how David understood it. That's, how, that's not how the righteous men of the Old Testament understood the law. Last slide, Isaiah 54, 17. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 9, 4. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I just think that most people misunderstand the Old Testament, thinking that people thought then that you were justified by works and sacrifices. I think they understood it. And then the Pharisees screwed everything up. It got corrupted. And now our view of the law is coming from the New Testament period of the Pharisees. And we have to get that thinking out of our minds. Okay? Today is no different than it was back then. We need Jesus. They, I think, even understood that these sacrifices themselves weren't it. It was a picture. Moses even said, this is a pattern of what's in heaven. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern that I've shown you. So, anyway, with that, we'll uh, close for tonight. Um, hopefully that continues to clear things up as we went through some verses here in Galatians. Uh, got a good chunk of it anyway. So, progress. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much again for the law of Christ. The liberty, the law of liberty that we have in you. God, I tell you, I, I want my ear to be pierced. I want to submit to you, you as a master, to your rules, to your lordship and i just pray that you help me to do that in every area of my life anything that i'm holding on to myself that i would be willing to let go and to serve you that not my will be done but your will be done i pray this in the name of jesus amen